So a friend of mine texted earlier tonight and he wrote, looks like your tweets are making news with a link to a sportsillustrated.com story. And the piece written by someone named Delani Scott was headlined, reporter offers latest criticism of Deion Sanders after Colorado coach called out media. And it begins like this. Following a statement season opening win over number 17 TCU, Colorado coach Deion Sanders made sure to call out everyone who doubted him and his team in the media. And as Sanders' post-game comments went viral, longtime sports journalist Jeff Perlman appeared to not take too kindly to Sanders' words. Perlman, who has both covered and criticized Sanders in the past, shared a pointed message to Coach Prime in defense of his colleagues after he asked reporters, including ESPN's Ed Werder, if they believed in CU after his debut victory. Didn't realize we, the media, were supposed to be cheering for the teams we cover, Perlman wrote Saturday night in a post on X, formerly Twitter. Perlman's history with Sanders has been well-documented, with a reporter-author covering him extensively in his 2008 book about the 1990s Cowboys, Boys Will Be Boys, and calling him out over the years on various platforms. And my question is, how the fuck is this a story? A, my criticism was majorly minor, but B, who the hell cares what I have to say about Deion Sanders? And it really goes to the mounting ridiculousness of modern media, where there's so little reporting and so little detail, just a desire to get clicks off of some insignificant bullshit. And not for nothing, Delani Scott never called me. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Stephen Marsh, a novelist and essayist and former Esquire columnist, as well as the author of, among other books, On Writing and Failure and The Next Civil War. This is episode number 327. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Stephen, thank you for joining me here. You have this dignified blur in the back, gray shirt. You don't look like I'm sitting in my closet with a lot of shit surrounding me. You look much more dignified than me. And I feel like your book, a new book you wrote on writing and failure has almost a we're all a bunch of disheveled monkeys feel, but then you don't look like a disheveled monkey. You look like a very well put together guy who's about to go to the office and drink a cappuccino. Oh, it's all image, man. Well, I mean, why would I blur my background if I didn't have chaos in my life? That's right? a fair point. You know, like this is my bedroom behind me. That's that's the reason it's blurred. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. I'm just see, I have I have less of an ego, and I'm willing to sit in the closet and show you uh, my wife's sweatshirt. You know, it's not a problem. <laughs> um, Better sound in the closet, but you know, it's not my show, so the the sound uh, the sound quality is really not my problem. Fair, fair point. Um, yeah. all right. So basically, you know, you're a writer. You've been around a long time. We're 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 about the same age, and we have about the same duration of experience. You've written a lot of books. Blah 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 blah. You've written for a million different places, but I'm somehow or another, I stumbled upon a book you wrote called on writing and failure that came out this year. And I ordered it because every now and then I like to read about someone who understands the torture, pain and sort of hell of writing. And I get the book and what I, I'm expecting like a 300 page book and it's 80 pages. It's very slim and small. And I love every freaking page of it. What makes a guy write an 80 page book on writing and failure? Well, I mean, the short answer is that Dan at Bibli Oasis called me up and asked me if I had 20,000 words to say about anything. And 
I sort of kept a sort of collection of these anecdotes in the notebook, like because they gave me solace. You know, I find like a lot of writer stories you read where it's like they struggled and they succeeded or whatever, like those are pretty useless. They don't make you feel any better. But like when you realize that like James Joyce couldn't get a job at an Italian technical college because they they didn't think he was competent in English. That's the kind of thing that I think really makes you realize what kind of business you're in and sort of gives you uh, the feel of it. I mean, as for the length, I mean, personally, I love this length. As a reader and a writer, like the 20,000 words is seriously underrepresented. I think it's, you're, you're only asking the reader for two hours of their time, really. And you can put a lot into a 20,000 word composition it, it's it's a great length it's totally it, it should it should absolutely be on on the comeback i also think we overrate somewhere along the line if someone writes a biography of whoever benjamin franklin or stephen john whoever yeah. you pick your guy it needs to be quote unquote hefty right it needs to be hefty no. and it's kind of annoying it is and you know the original like i I'm, my phd is in 17th century literature and like their author biographies are like 80 pages. I mean, they are they, uh, like, you know, the lives of Dunn, lives of Wilton, lives of Hooker, um, and the, those sorts of things. And then when, you know, when uh, Samuel Johnson wrote Lives of the Poets, I mean, some of them are like over 100 pages, but th that's just the biggest, biggest names, your Pope, your people like that. Like, there was absolutely no shame in writing a biography that was like 35 pages, because there's nothing else interesting to say about whoever it was. And I just think that's, like, yeah, the, the, the massive 800 page biography where you're filling it in with 30 pages on like what printing culture was like in the 18th century. I mean, you, you know, like it, it, it's boring. Well, it's really funny. I actually think about this all the time. The thing I struggle with. So I mainly write biographies. Right. And example, my last, I don't know how big of a sports guy you are, if at all, but my last biography was a, a book about Bo Jackson, the former. Yeah, right. I mean, see, there's a good, there's a real, well, he would be the one where you would, you would need length. I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, there's just so much to talk about. But do you, here's the thing. I always right. think like, do people really want to read 120 pages about Bo Jackson's childhood? Right. I don't know. I know. Like the, the answer for me definitely is no. <laughs> like, like, and, and I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I, like, I think, there, there's well, I think when you read almost any piece of nonfiction, there's so much filler in it. I mean, there's just so much filler in nonfiction books that it's just, I, I mean, it's just, it's annoying. And you know, you know what readers do? They just skim it. Right. right? Well, you know it because I do it too. Want to have that relationship with your reader where they're like, okay, I can, I can skip the next sixty pages. It's not. I don't think that's good. I agree. All right. So wait, you wrote a, uh, you wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times, 2014. Failure is our muse, and. Yeah. The lead to it was July 8th, in case you happen to miss it, was Fitz Green Halleck Day, a chance to remember the most intensely forgotten writer in American history. No name in the American political world is more firmly established than that of Fritz Green Halleck, Edgar Allan Poe wrote in 1843. And yet, despite a Central Park statue that still stands in his honor, Fitz Green Halleck may now be the most famous man to ever achieve total obscurity. Failure is big now, right now a subject of commencement speeches and business conferences like FailCon, at which triumphant entrepreneurs detail all their ideas that went bust. But businessmen are only amateurs of failure, just getting used to the notion. Writers are the real professionals. Wait, and this is my favorite part. 300,000 books are published in the United States every year. A few hundred at most could be called financial or creative successes. The majority of books by successful writers are failures. 
The majority of writers are failures. And then there are the would-be writers, those who have failed to be writers in the first place, a category which, if you believe what people tell your parties, constitutes the bulk of the species. <laughs> it's funny because whenever people say to me, wow, you wrote a book, that's amazing, right? That's amazing. I always say, have you been to a bookstore? Yeah, sure. I kind of feel like anyone who does write a book, you've done something. Like you've actually, like, you know, I have a PhD. People are impressed by that. They're real, like, there legitimately is no reason to be impressed by a PhD. It is strictly an endurance contest that is, is not a sign of intelligence or ability or, or, or intellectual depth. It is simply a sign of capacity to endure bureaucratic nonsense. Whereas I feel with, if, if you've gotten a book in, if you've even written a book, you've actually, you've actually done something. You know, you actually, I, I don't know. I think one of the things I've really realized writing this book is that what I have respect for in this life is skilled labor, right? And like a book, even a failed book, even a bad book is an attempt at skilled labor, right? And I think that's that you have to respect that. It's like anyone, you know, anyone who gets in a boxing ring and gets a punch, you know, and get even the people who like lose every boxing match, they're still worthy of respect. You have to respect that. And I kind of feel that way about, about people who write books. Like if anyone to do it takes guts, you know, I think, I think it does. But do we overrate ourselves? We have to overrate ourselves because the world totally underrates us. Overrate ourselves. How? Like it's, I mean, you're getting the, you're getting so much kicked out of you all the time that, you know, you have to kind of have a story of your own uh, value or else you won't, you won't continue. I don't want to brag. I just did the Tucson festival of books. You might have heard of it. It's a festival of books in Tucson, Arizona. It's kind of a big deal. And um, you know what's was, funny is I'm so out of touch with this stuff. It could be, it could be like, you know, doing some major thing. I'd be like, like, I, I mean, I really wouldn't know, but yeah. anyway, go on. Well, and you know, it's all the writers and they get together and they have the, you know, they have the reception where we all talk about yeah. our books and we're all this. Oh, what are you working on? And Oh, you're working on this. And, did you appear on the Today Show? Oh, I got this in the New York Times and blah, blah, blah. Sure. And I just feel like we do like to celebrate ourselves. But in a way, I feel like you're kind of saying in your book, we should celebrate ourselves because nobody gives a shit. And this whole task just beats the crap out of you anyhow. Well, I mean, I don't think that stuff, like the bragging rights stuff, you know, that has a shelf life of happiness of about a millisecond. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's funny. There are people that you meet. I mean, I mentioned one guy in the book who I, who I knew who considered himself a serious writer because he'd had a letter in the Times Literary Supplement. Right. Whereas, like, like there are other people you meet who have real accomplishments that you know you just kind of blow you away, or and, or have made millions of dollars doing this and feel no sense of accomplishment whatsoever. Right. Like it's. I mean, the Hemingway, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald story in the book where it's like Hemingway was absolutely convinced of himself as a success his whole life, even when he hadn't published anything. And even when he went through 10 year periods where he published nothing but crap and F. Scott Fitzgerald thought of himself as a failure his whole life, even though he had bestsellers that were obviously just incredible books and that everyone knew were incredible books. And it was in their heads. To me, it's not necessarily like the bragging stuff about it is so transparent. And, and it also just doesn't, it just doesn't last past about a half a minute. I want to emphasize again, I freaking love this book. And I've read 
the different books about writing and they're all, you know, it's Robert Caro and Stephen King and they're yeah. all really good and they're excellent and blah, blah, But there's something about this one that just hit me in the head. And it might be because I'm working on a Tupac biography right now. That's killing me mm-hmm. day by day, but all right, you wrote, it's stupid to say that writers need to suffer. The biographies of writers do not fit a collective pattern, not even of suffering. You got your modders, you got your lucky bastards, you got your drunks, you got your teetotalers, you got your libertines, you got your prudes, you got your assholes, you got your sweethearts, you got your murders, murder victims, rapists, rape victims, police. You got people who are good with money, you got your people who are bad with money. You got cheats, you got junkies, you got guys who live good portions of their lives in whorehouses. You got guys who never recover from the shock of discovering that women have pubic hair. <laughs> Wait, that's an excellent throw in right there. Well, you know who that is. No. That's it, Ruskin, John Ruskin. He was the leading art critic of his day. And we, he married this woman. And then he saw it we, on the wedding night. He saw that she had pubic hair and he divorced her. I'm serious. You can look it up. I'm not making that up. Everything in that list is re- referring to a real human being. And he was a great writer. And then you've got, you know, Charles Bukowski or whoever, right? Like, it, like it, there, there is no pattern, I don't think. So women do have pubic hair? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, listen to Tupac. He'll probably tell you about it. <laughs> exactly. No. Uh, wait, and you ended by saying, so anyone who tells you that you have to be a certain way to be a writer, they have to live a certain life. They have to see the world or that you have to lock yourself away, that you have to abandon your people or that you have to love your people. They have to suffer. You have to forget your suffering, whatever. It's all bullshit. You have to write. You have to submit. You have to persevere. You have to throw yourself against the door. That's it. Yeah. Freaking love it. That's it. Is that well, it? I mean, like all these, all these like people who tell you they have to, I mean, let's like, well, look at literary history. Like if you actually look at literary history, there's no pattern. It's not like, oh, it has to be this way or it has to be that way. It doesn't have to be any way at all. I mean, literature is a cosmopolitan thing. And I, I mean, I, that to me is its real power that you, you, you have this sense of belonging to a, a tribe that transcends geography and temporality. Right. And and that means that it, it has a lot of different types of people in it. It's as varied as human experience itself. Right. And that's that's the joy of it, that you get you get to sit down with like bishops and whores. Right. And, uh, you know, great athletes and little dweebs. Right. Like it's all it's, it is part of a collective humanity that we all belong to and that's that, that's why it's such a humanizing activity do you love writing as much as you enjoy reporting um i'm way better at writing than i am reporting i came to reporting after i didn't really have to report anything until i was in my 30s i reporting to me is a skill that i've learned um but it's definitely not like writing i was doing when i was 10 years old you know i've always been a writer but coming to re- reporting was something i really i mean i do i've learned to love it like I, I have actually learned to understand how much it adds and I enjoy the craft too. Like I enjoy learning how to interview people, learning how to, how to do that work, getting out on the street. I mean, there is no replacement for seeing things, you know, I've taken to it, but it's not, it's not natural to me. Like it's, it's a skill that I've had to master. I would not sure I would even say that I've mastered it. I would just say that I, I do feel I'm getting better at it and getting good enough at it. But writing, I feel like I've, I'm always going to write and I always have written. But reporting is a different matter. Again, I'm doing Tupac. It's a two-year process. I'll yeah. take a year and a half and all I'll do is report. I know we all have our different ways of doing this. And then I'll take yeah. six months and I'll sit down every day and I'll say, okay, I'm going to write this book. Yeah. And it hurts. It actually does hurt me. Like, I, I don't want to get too writery bullshit, but it actually... You're more of a reporter than a writer. 
it definitely is easier for me reporting right. than writing. Like the writing, you're like, and day after day, and I'm like day 93 straight of writing about Tupac. It starts to beat the shit out of me. Do you sit down to write a book? And are you like every morning, are you like happy and peppy and just loving the actual process of putting words on a screen? I write every day. I wrote the day that my father died. Like I write, like to me, like writing is like, like it's something that I, like being alone with a page and a pen or a computer or whatever, but mostly I actually write with a pen. Like that's something that I, that is basically a compulsion. Like I don't have, like if I, if I'm not, like if I don't, I always am working on something. There was never a day where, well, I take Saturdays off now, um, but like that's a strategy, but like, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly writing. What do you mean you write with a pen? Like I write it, with a pen and like a notepad. Remember these with ink in it. With ink in it. This book, I the, the, the on writing and failure. My I was trying to get a new technique, and it was during COVID. So I would do all the research, and then I would write one section a day with a fountain pen, and I almost didn't edit it. it like because I, I would think through the whole section, and then I would try and write it like very precisely, as like consciously, which is you know, as you know, really tough to do. Like it's, it's like a con it's like a conscious practice to do that, but that's how I wrote that book. I've had guys on this podcast who do typewriters, which I found yeah. interesting. You will literally write in a pad using a pen and then transfer it over to then type it in. Well, I mean, what it is, is it's like, like this, to this is the notes that I've taken on a chapter of a book. Okay. You're holding up. I just want to say for listeners, you're holding up a big wad of paper. That's maybe 450 pages of notes, right? Like I take extremely copious notes with a pen. Um, I try to not, I try to never write. Like I never want to actually be writing. Like that's, that's like the worst thing in the world, right? Wait, what do you mean? I take so many notes that it becomes like just to type them in. Like I essentially type in all the notes that I have. And then I, that is a first draft. Then I edit the shit out of Like, like, that's my process. I don't, I, I don't ever want to be sitting at a blank screen trying to figure something out. That's, I don't think anyone can write that way. I don't, I don't think anyone can come up with a way to conceive of things properly that way. And of course, like the reason I don't use a computer, I mean, a computer is like a distraction machine at this point. Yeah. So like, you, you know, you just I, like when I type things in, I watch a movie while I do it. Wait, this is all new to me. You wrote a book, just an example, the next civil war about the fucking nightmare we're living in here in America. And yeah. You're working on this book and you're researching the book and you're digging into certain parts of America. Yeah. All your notes you are taking by hand. You're, you're Well, that one is more reported. So that, so I report that like that, that I did like about 200 interviews for that thing. Okay. So that was like what you're going through the Tupac book, like just like calling people, going to places, like getting detail, like getting as much detail as you can. I mean, I, like I think nonfiction, it's not, it's not brain surgery. It's like the, the quality of a nonfiction book is quality of the research quality of the notes, quality of the draft, quality of the editing. Like to me, that's like, those, there are four steps and you do each of them as fully as you can. And that's how you get good work. Right. Um, so like I would do all that research then I would take it home. Um, I would absolutely handwrite all of the notes for it um, with TKs for the interviews. Like I, I like, and I would flag the interviews for where they were. Then I would do that. Then I would edit it. And it, the editing process would take forever. You know, like I, I it, I'm sure I've never published anything that didn't go through a hundred drafts at least. Do you dread editing? No, I love it. It's my favorite part. 
I love dealing with a real hard. I mean, you know, when I was a, a columnist at Esquire, like they would have very serious dudes who would edit my monthly columns six or seven times. And sometimes those edits would be like start over. And I love that. I mean, I really feel like that's one thing that kid writers are, are being denied right now is like that, that absolutely educated me on how to compose things in a way that, you know, you're just not going to get. You're not going to get that at J school or anywhere else. We just have an editor like, we're going to work this thing till it's done. Till it's, till it's like the maximum quality that we can get onto two pages of glossy print is what we're going to do with this. And we're not going to stop for anything. That process is just, I think it's gone now. That was extraordinary. Then, of course, I've had incredibly lousy editors too. And I, I, editors who fucked me over and editors who were just idiots. And like, like I've worked for everywhere now. So like, you know, editors, are, there's lots of good ones. There's lots of bad ones. Do you feel like you can see the impact of a lack of editing in sort of modern writing and the stuff you read, whatever magazines and websites you go to? Um, well, I think there's like different kinds of writing. I think if you look at like a feature story now, they're very well edited. Like if you look at a feature story in the guardian or the Atlantic or whatever, like that's, that's been through a process. Um, you know, then there's lots of ancillary writing that is not edited anywhere near as much as it, as it used to be. Right. And you do feel that what I feel I notice a bit more with Substack and with the new is, is audience capture where you have writers who are basically speaking to increasingly niche audiences that they need. And, and that leads to, that leads to silo thinking and it leads to not being able to say what you feel. And it leads to thinking about, you know, narrowing your focus. I'm obviously like the extreme of this where I like, you know, write about the next civil war. And then I write about, you know, a book on writing and failure. And, you know, I'm writing about AI and like, I don't, I just do whatever fascinates me and like, and, and just go from there. But like, it, what I do notice before is way more focus on, but more ideological focus and more topical focus, which I do feel is a lot because a loss, because it leads to a kind of a less surprising argument and of course we're living in a, a time of just sh like the culture war shit which i just despise and I, I have no time for as a kind of writing on either side like i the, 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 when you get to these polemical preachy uh left-wing right-wing articles they're just a, they're just unreadable and, yeah. and people stop reading them people people don't read them they, they slowly stop reading before we continue with two writers slinging yang a quick word from our sponsor Hey, this is Casey Perlman, and I'm here with Anna Norris, my co-host on the hit KSCT radio show, We're So Crazy. So, with the Screen Actors on Strike, I landed us this pretty sweet gig doing an ad for my dad's podcast. What the fuck's a podcast? This thing old people watch. Well, what's the ad for? RoyalRetros.com. It's a throwback sports merchandise company that makes pretty sweet t-shirts, hats, and jerseys of old sports leagues. Do we get paid? In t-shirts. But he also says, if we do a good job, we might advance to hats and jerseys. And then what? And then you wear a hat. Hard pass. I'm going back to my side hustle slinking rocks on the streets of La Jolla. I mean, you obviously write about all different topics. And I have a piece you wrote last year uh, for LitHub called, um, What Will Take to Resuscitate American Democracy? You wrote, the alarm has been rung and often enough. Any American who can read knows that democracy is in crisis. The U.S. government increasingly struggles to fulfill its most basic tasks like guaranteeing the debt, passing budgets, or confirming the diplomatic corp. Meanwhile, armed groups of insurrectionists, like the one that stormed the U.S. Capitol just over a year ago, spread incoherence. 
think tanks on the right and universities on the left still debate politics like the tax rate or parental leave. They're play acting at this point, whether they know it or not. They distract themselves with the antiquities while the temple collapses around their shoulders. The questions have become much more basic than obscure policy. Will democracy survive? How to keep Americans' institutions alive? Yeah. And you write a lot. I mean, you literally wrote a book about America collapsing. You write a lot about democracy collapsing. How do you not like ball up in the corner of a room and just want to freaking cry or throw stuff against a wall? And how can you still write about it and then go about your day and have a popsicle later in the day and go to sleep? You know, we've been given to live in dark times. You know, you're like my age, right? So you're like Gen X. So we remember what it was like for boomers, right? And that kind of creates this sadness in us because like, we're like, well, why can't it be like it was for them, right? You know, those aren't the times that we've been given to live in. We've been given to live in times that, you know, like what just happened in Tennessee where they're trying to kick people out for expressing, out of government for expressing their political opinions. They're trying to, or the arrest of Donald Trump, which, you know, everyone on the left is cheering about, but like, this is like banana Republic stuff, right? Like this is like, I mean, it probably had to happen. I'm not, I'm not saying he's not, you know, indictable and he's not guilty of crimes, but like when you arrest ex presidents, that is not a, that is a bad moment in your national history. Like, like it, it just really is. Like, I think we have these times that we begin and we're got to, we've got to do the best that we can. But I, I, I think it's, and I think it's absolutely essential that we just don't, first of all, we don't get caught up in self-pity about how it's not the past, um, a sense of defeatism about that. But also, you know, I just really believe that my job as a writer is to provide clarity, right? Like, it, like, like that's my task. And like the reason I don't curl up in a ball is because it's like, well, the world, there's a lot of things to clarify out there. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I love America and I still have a lot of hope for America, but it requires like a little clarity of mind to, to see what, like it, 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 it this is not going to work itself out. Like it needs to be worked out. And the first step in that is seeing that there is a crisis. I, I think that's my task. And I just try to do my best with that, you know? It's hard. Other people have had it hard too. Sure. You know? It's hard, but it's like, but compared to what? Like compared to how it was for George Orwell, we have it n- no problems. We have zero problems. Compared to how was it compared to any Russian writer in, in the entire history of this canon? We have zero problems. Like, like, honestly, I think there is something where it's like, Okay, writing is tough and it is getting harder. Like we are in the middle of institutional collapse when it comes to uh, literary institutions, right? But at the same time, it's like, well, it's actually kind of always been that way, except for like the post-war period in the United States that lasted about 40 years. Everyone else out there has always had to fight like a dog to do this stuff. I think a little perspective is useful. Wait, you wrote something. (laughs) I got to say, I love, I hope you don't mind me asking about this. Because you had your own Trump which was uh, Rob Ford, the mayor of Toronto. Oh, yeah. Those were the good old days. As a freelancer, oh, my God. It was like a money spigot. It was incredible. People were calling me from Germany. Can you write pieces for us? $3 a word. I mean, it was like, my editors at us were like, any time you want, if you want to write about this three times a day, go right ahead. It was crazy. Wait, so you wrote, (laughs) you wrote wrote a column for the Globe and Mail called Rob Ford. Rob Ford is, is not popular. Despite being fat, he's popular because of it. I think it's really funny. Have you seen the column? I read half the column because uh, someone ran an excerpt of it. 
Well, I got fired for that. I know well, you did. I, I didn't get, I didn't get fired. I got like, I was a columnist and then it was like, no, thank you anymore. Not to toot my own horn, but probably one of the most prescient columns I've ever written because they totally predicted Trump. It said like, you know, this is post-industrial men and their rage are going to vote for people like this. And I, I mean, they fired me for it. I mean, they kicked me out. They didn't fire me. All right. So what I'm actually kind of fast. So for people who don't know, sitting here in the U.S., mainly yeah. U.S. Audience, Rob Ford was a mayor of Toronto. He was a buffoonish character. He yeah. was a, uh, an addict. Um, he would call into sports radio in New York and make predictions. I mean, weird, weird, weird guy. He did crack, and, man. And oh, yeah. And he was on crack. He smoked crack in the mayor's office. And crack is whack, man. Crack is whack. I mean, the, the thing that was like the aha moment with Rob Ford was that he got caught smoking crack and his popularity went up. Right. And that was the moment. And that was the moment where it was like, okay, this is, and I, I honestly think Trump saw that and understood that that was like, if you ride out scandal, people actually want you more because they hate they hate the moralism and they hate the judgmentalism of these institutions. I've called them before in the past, like the St. John the Baptist for the Jesus Christ of Don, the Donald Trump. Like that's kind of what he was. Although he was never, you know, to be fair to Rob Ford, like he was never mean spirited. He was not a nasty person like, uh, like Donald Trump is. He just was an addict. He was just out of control. Wait, so you write this column, you're, you're a columnist for the Globe and Mail and you write a column. Mm-hmm. Rob Ford is not popular despite being fat. He's popular because of it. And the Globe removes the column from the online version of the paper and then cancels your column. Yep. Yep. I'll, I'll throw a big, broad softball at you. What was that like? Yeah. You see, you have to understand the Canadian context. You know, we don't have the First Amendment and we don't we don't have anywhere near as high an expectation of the freedom of expression as they do in the United States. And so. And not that there's not freedom of speech here and not that, you know, they published that column and like it certainly was reasonable right into that. But there's a certain amount of kind of colonial restraint in this country. I've been I mean, I've been relatively successful in America, but in Canada, they just fire me all the time. You brought up this story, but I could tell you like literally three or four more that were just as bad as that that happened that other Canadian magazines did or Canadian newspapers did. I mean, they just really have not liked me. I am sort of in internal exile in my own country for sure as a writer anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm a very proud Canadian. I'm even patriotic, but I'm not like, I'm not part of Canadian writing. Right. And the thing was that it was like, they didn't even call me. They didn't like, they just 404 it. Then they wrote an apology. Like, then they wrote an apology and they didn't, they never talked to me about it. And I just thought that was so gutless, you know, I just thought it was like, look, just call me up and tell it to my face. But, you know, they, they never did. Wait, I just want to say, um, <laughs> first of all, I've become a big fan of your writing. I swear. Like, Thank you. I love your approach. I love everything about it. I love the kind of like, like I've been dumped from a bunch of places too, through the years. And it's usually, sure. well, this was, a, I've been dumped by places too, but I, ne- I generally never have hard feelings. Right. I mean, it's like if they don't want your work anymore, they don't want your work. That's, I mean, that, that's the nature of this business. This is a different matter. Right. Like 404 in your work and then not calling you. That's a different business, you know. Wait, so you wrote a piece for the Toronto Star in 2007, October 20th, 2007, <laughs> raging against the tyranny of Candlet. And you, yeah, sure. and you wrote, you just moved from Brooklyn to uh, back to Toronto and you wrote, Brooklyn is so, so young and Toronto is so, so old. It felt yeah. like moving from a frenetic daycare to an old folks home. Yeah. That that did not go over well. I mean, 
I'm sitting here complaining about why they don't like me. Maybe it's partly me. You it might be you. Like when you read quotes like that, it's like, yeah, maybe there's a reason they don't they don't like me. But I was right. I mean, I was right. I still think like Canada is kind of like a junkie mother and her drug of choice is virtue. All the art and culture here is like absolutely um extremely driven towards mainstream progressive politics. Like if it, if it doesn't have that motivation behind it, it basically can't come to exist. And, and I find it very boring. I mean, I just find it extremely dull. That's not to take away from like, you know, like there are a lot of Canadian writers that I love, right? Like I love Margaret Atwood's writing. I love Al- I mean, Alice Monroe. It doesn't get any better than that. Like you're just not going to find a better short story writer than that. But there's, there's a certain, there's definitely a culture of, I would say willful boredom, you know, that is, uh, I find, I find pretty, pretty tough. Chris Jones, a great Canadian writer, sports writer. Yeah. But in America. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, like, you know, and that's, you know, Chris and I worked together at Esquire and, you know, he had exactly the same things. I mean, you know, I, I don't think he works for, he works for lots of Canadian places. He doesn't have anywhere near the, you know, drama that I have with Canadian places, but you know, I, I think his best pieces would had to be written in American publications 100%. Yeah. Well, you wrote in that essay in Toronto Star, that column you wrote, the major writers in Brooklyn are young, or if they're not young, they pretend to be. Thus, the spectacle of 50-year-olds in skeleton hoodies hunched over their MacBooks. And I just want to say, as a 50-year-old who sits in coffee shops, fucking ouch, man. What the hell? Why why are you doing that? What can I tell you, buddy? Hey, I'm with you now. But not that I even hate the guys in skeleton hoodies. Like, it's not like I, I mean, better that than the opposite. Right. Like, but in Toronto, I mean, you would never see that. And it was in Brooklyn in those days, like 2007. I mean, that was peak. I mean, it was absurd. Again, we're about the same age. So you wrote that when we were about the same age, kind of come along. Do you feel like you get better as a writer as you get older or do you get more cautious and more sort of, well, what are they going to think? Or how is this going to affect my family? Or I need my 401k or, you know, whatever, you know, like. I think I'm absolutely at peak right now. You do? Why? I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm doing, I'm better than I was, but also it's not really that. It's that I know what I can do that other people can't do. I know what gifts I possess and I know how to use them. And I think that's quite natural for an essayist to get good, like in mid forties like mid to late forties. Like that's not, that's not unusual, but I definitely feel like I know what I'm doing right now much better than I, than I ever have in terms of like how to do it in terms of how to like make things. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm absolutely way better now than I have been. The weird catch 22 to it all is I would agree with you. I definitely know how to do a million things better now than I did 10, 20 years ago. And yet fewer people want to listen to you as you get older. Actually, Roger Angel wrote a whole essay about that, how as he aged, yeah, but he was like 91. But it did kind of hit me a little. It's like, it's like, it's like, yeah, at 90 plus, they start to, they start to tune out. I mean, tough, Roger, Jesus. <laughs> I don't feel that way at all. You don't? Yeah. No, no. I mean, but I, I think I also tend to go towards things where I know there'll be an audience more. Like I'm less interested in doing things that are, you know, I did super experimental avant-garde novels when I was a kid. Now I'm writing for people on their phones. I have an audience and I'm writing for that audience. And that's, um, that's a strength. What do you mean you're writing for people on their phones? What does that mean exactly? The last book that really changed my practice 
was Reality Hunger by David Shields. You ever read that book? I have not. What he basically said, it's a very interesting argument because he, he basically he basically convinced me that nonfiction was where the action is. The literary impulse in fiction um, like wasn't really up to the moment. Like what wasn't really up to this moment and that the, this moment, the moment of technological change, the moment of huge change, nonfiction and the essay in particular were going to be the, the dominant modes, right? And I really thought of myself as a novelist and short story writer. And even though they were, you know, these are sort of niche fields, that's really how I understood literary expressivity and, and literary creation. And, you know, then when I was like, okay, what I noticed is that I would write for like the guardian and like my kid's piano teacher would have read it. And like the plumber who came in to fix the, the toilet would have read it. And I was like, well, that's what I really want. What I want is like to be able to express myself in language and be read by everyone. I don't really want to write for like little priestly classes of art people. You know what I mean? Like, I think like writing is uh, like the beauty of it is that it, it is high, like what we were talking about before high, low bishops and whores, like, at, like everyone in between uh, is p- sitting down at this table of humanity and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And literature is a way of doing that. So what Shield said in that book is like you, what we have to do is to begin to write for the phone, right? And think about what it means to write for the, for the phone. And I really have taken that to heart. Like, I, I think about that all the time. Even books, I think, like, like this book is like, if you got that on your phone, it would be the perfect way to, you know, to, if you were doing on a short haul flight, it'd be perfect for it. Right. Right. A short sections, aggressive, everyone well-made, no filler. Like, there's no filler in that book. It's like very tight, very lean. And, you know, a lot of reported essays, which I really believe in. I mean, I really believe the reported essay is... I mean, that was the other thing in Shield's book. He's like, look, if you actually go and look at David Foster Wallace, his essays are what's great. Everything else is actually pretty mediocre. If you look at a lot of writers, their best material is these essays. You know, I mean, even people like Hemingway, even people, even people that far back, where they're, you know, they're still able to write short stories for huge money for the Saturday Evening Post or whatever, and there's a large audience for it, but their essays are still the most fascinating thing that you can read from them. I, I think, you know, The Crack Up by F. Scott Fitzgerald, things like this, these are incredible. So, you know, to me, it was about an approach to the medium that was a little more, you know, more roll with the punch, more like trying to figure out what you can actually do in this moment rather than pining for some lost era of art that, you know, has just passed us by. But does writing for the phone literally change the way you write? Meaning if I read you now and then I read something you wrote pre cell phone proliferation, am I going to be like, oh, this guy's a totally different writer? What we are doing right now is for the phone. People are going to listen to this on their phone. Audio, that's writing for the phone. Yeah. I do two, two audio series with Audible. Those are formally essays that are just audio form because that's how people, and you know, Tens of thousands, I, I probably both of them, hundreds of thousands of people listen to them. That's to me what, where, what I mean here. But also, yes, absolutely writing for the form involves change. I mean, there is a, a moment for me that was kind of key where a Guardian editor, you know, I've been writing these like long features, like something like 7,000 words where I would go and do like a Trump rally and a Sanders rally and write about them. And my Guardian editor said, I'm going to show you the numbers on your pieces. 
I'm not going to show it to you again. I'm just going to show it to you once because I don't want you to know about them. But like no one reads past 2,500 words. That's true of everyone. So the question becomes like, okay, do I go and cry and still write 5,000 word pieces and 7,000 word pieces all the time? Or do I try to write the best 2,500 word pieces that have ever existed? Right. And I think the thing is to do the latter. There's absolutely an art to that. And like you, and, and like, you know, this, this, what you lose, you lose this vanity, right? You lose this, this like status nonsense stuff. Exactly. Like you're talking about the Tucson book fair. I got in here, but you gain the world, right? You gain like actually meeting readers where they are actually sharing insight with what you've seen. And that to me is worth, like, I would take that, you know, I would take that over the, over the status stuff any day. I'm required on this podcast to ask you, I ask everyone, and I, I would say 80% of my guests have been sports writers and sports journalists. So it mm. lends itself to that world. But in your career, what is either your best confrontation or the most angry someone has been at you? Oh, well, I mean, Rob Ford did say that I was said the worst things about him that had ever been said. I mean, you know, most of them are like political stuff that people have written, but they, you know, they don't mean it. It's just like nasty letters. Um, I'm not super confrontational because I feel like the kind of reporting that I do, I'm not out to, um, I want to get people's thoughts. Like I want to get what they actually believe and write it down. Like when I was doing the next civil war, I was certainly talking with a lot of Nazis and a lot of like extremely, you know, like I certainly would never tell them I have a Jewish wife. Right. Like, 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 you know, um, dangerous people, but I would genuinely feel upset if they felt that I misrepresented them. Right. Like, 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 I, like if they, if one of them would call me and say, I think you got this wrong about me, I, I would genuinely be angry at myself. I don't really see myself. I'm not an accountability journalist in that sense. I feel like it's the kind of reporting that I can do is like, explain to me your view of the world. I will write that down as, as clearly as I can, like, I, and be as honest and frank as I can. And then, then that'll be in a different representation, obviously in a different piece, but I, I'm not really that confrontational. I don't think I've ever, well, I mean, other than the death threats, right? Which I get all the time. Have you had yeah. some good death threats in your career? I mean, when you're writing about American politics, like I have a file folder that's just like death threats. But I mean, it's so funny. Like you say, have you had any confrontations? I don't even think of them as that. I mean, I did when I, I remember I wrote a piece about the trucker convoy here and I knew there was just going to be this onslaught. Right. I knew I'd get like 50 pieces of hate mail. Uh, so I decided that as an experiment, whoever wrote me, if there was one thing in it that was not just like, I'm going to kill you, I'd write back and say, I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm glad the piece resonated with you. Wishing you all the best, Stephen. Like I would write back the absolute most positive thing I could write back to everyone. And 75% of them apologized to me immediately. Yeah. Right. Like it was, it was just so interesting. It was like, right. They just never thought of me as a human being. And once it was like, hi, pleased to meet you. I'm my name's Steven. Then they're like, oh my God, what have I done? And and they immediately apologized. Right. I, I, I thought that was just such a, it was so horrible. I, I guess we just live in this, this screens just dehumanize us to such an extent. It's actually insane. The level of, yeah, there's this whole us versus them thing, right? Like the liberals, the conservatives, when you break it down, the conservative is a guy four houses down from me. Who's a really good dad who takes his kid to little league every day. 
and he voted for Trump. But we've decided that these people, the liberal, the conservative, yeah, are just these figurines, and it's freaking bonkers, and it's ruining us completely. I got lots of conservative friends in my country, lots. Yeah, but like, like my all my, my, my I'm from Alberta. Like my whole family there is all conservative, and I don't I mean the idea that they're less Canadian than me or something like. No, the partisanship that has gripped America is a form of it's insane. Yeah, it's just it's just insanity, right? And it, well, the book is about that, about how it spirals off of itself. I mean, hopefully we can we can stave ourselves here. I don't think we will be able to. I think it'll come for us just like it comes for everybody else. But I don't know. I mean, we have a pretty good track record of being wanting boredom. One of the rules of Canadian politics is like the more boring person tends to win. That's a very healthy approach, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, let me ask you the last thing. I'm kind of, I was just kind of curious. Marjorie Taylor Greene was a guest on 60 Minutes. And yeah. she was interviewed by Leslie Stahl. And in the lead up, I didn't think Leslie Stahl did a particularly good job. But in the lead up to the interview, tons of people on the left, and I happen to be very liberal, but tons of people on the left, on social media, this is horrible. How can you give her a platform? Why in the world would you have her on? And my stance was... I kind of want to know what she thinks. Like, I want to hear from her. I don't agree with her, but she's huge in American politics. I kind of want to hear from her. She is on the National Defense Committee. There, There is absolutely no world in which not hearing her opinion is a failure of journalism. Are you kidding me? Right. Like, the, the idea that 60 Minutes is giving her a platform, American government gave her a platform. Right. Like 60 minutes is it is absolutely their responsibility to report on her and to get interviews with her and to find out what she has to say. She is one of the most powerful human beings on the planet. That's a terrifying fact. And I'm sure we all don't want it to be true. But people blame journalists when they don't want to blame people. You know, like that's really what it comes down to. It's like when people blame lawyers. Right. It's like I, I get it. They, they exist in this powerful world that you don't have access to and it's very confusing and mysterious. But like, it is not the fault of 60 minutes that Marjorie Taylor Greene is a powerful human being. That's the fault of the American people. Right. And like, no one can accept that, of course. I agree. But then it's up to us to do a decent job and challenge her views and ask questions that, that matter and blah, blah, blah. And I, I did think I the think show- you, what if her positions are should be should be revealed. The job of the journalist here is not super complicated. It's a powerful human being with powerful responsibilities. The job is to show what they think and what they're planning on doing, because they'll probably do it. Right. Right. That's just such a no brainer to me. Yeah, me too. And I always say I would if you told me I could whoever the New York Times wanted me to write 5000 words or 2500 words on Margie Taylor Green, I'd go down tomorrow. What else are we doing out here? We're, I'm not in the business of hiding reality from people. Like, that's, like, like if you don't like the reality, saying that the media should hide it from you is not that's not a solution. It just it just isn't. I agree. Well, Stephen, I appreciate your time a whole lot. Love the book on writing and failure. It spoke to me a million different ways. So uh, thanks for writing it. Thanks for keeping it short. So I read it in like three sittings. That was great. Thank Dan. I love the 20,000 word length. If they let me write that, if I, could, I honestly could write that length once a year. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the greatest thing ever. But thank you yeah. so much. I appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Stephen Marsh, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Stephen on Twitter at Stephen Marsh and visit his website, stephenmarsh.com. If you have a chance and you enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, Please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really grateful. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep.
keep writing. <laughs>